thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we will be talking about Mary under her title, Mother of Life. And what we're going to do is look at, uh, at the meaning of that title. What does, what does it mean when we say Mary is the Mother of Life? The first thing we're going to do is look at the prototype, uh, which is Eve. Because Eve was given that title, Mother of the Living. Similar title, not exactly the same. But she is the prototype of, of that, that really Our Lady completed. Then we're going to try to understand what does it mean uh, for Mary to be the mother of life in relationship to us. And, then, and the third thing we're going to do is then ask ourselves, how do we respond to the work of Our Lady in us? In a nutshell, that's going to be the talk tonight. So the first thing we're going to look at is Eve. Eve as a prototype of Our Lady. In chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, verse 20, we read that the man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Eve receives a name that describes who she is, and Mary received also a name that described who she is. Eve, when Eve was created, as you know, Eve was created after Adam. Eve was created from Adam. The reason why this is so, I mean, there there are many reasons, but one that is very important for us to understand is that when God decided to create Eve out of Adam, he had something very specific in mind. The first thing God said was that it is not good for the man to be alone. Let us make him a helper, befitting him. Let us make him a helper. When God said it is not good for the man to be alone, God was not stating that there was a mistake or an error in creation. Previously, God said creation was good. Every time, every day went by, he would say it was good. And God saw that it was good and was complete, he said, and and God said it was very good. So why did he then say it is not good? The reason being that oftentimes when we speak and we say something, we may say it because we need to hear it, or we may say it because... Someone else needs to hear it. And in this case, it is someone else who needs to hear it. And that someone else is Adam. 
He needed to hear that the longing that he, he had in his heart was known to God. And there is a whole thing we can say about Adam's behavior, which I'm not going to go into right now. Suffice it to say that the primary reason why God created Eve was because there was something that was missing in Adam. That is the reason why Eve was created. Because there was something missing in Adam. But because man and woman are both equal in dignity, one might say also that Eve was incomplete without Adam. She's incomplete without him. But notice the aspect of a gift. Eve was a gift from God to Adam. Do you understand that point? It is an important one to reflect upon. When God puts a woman in the path of a man, she is a gift from God to him. And when he puts a man in the path of a woman, he is a gift. And therefore, man and woman must understand that their bodies are not theirs, because they are a gift to the other. Eve, therefore, when, when God said, let, let Eve be, I, let us make him a helper, we, because of original sin and our own pride, dislike the word helper. It, it sounds derogatory. It seems like Adam is the boss and Eve is just a secretary. And God was saying, well, okay, we've got the CIO, our company, going here. We need to fill in the position of secretary. Okay, Eve, why don't you come over? That is a deformation of Scripture. That is taking sinful humanity and then doing something that is close to, I, I mean, to a, um, an insult. Pumping those ideas back into God's mind. That's not what was meant. What is to help? When you go somewhere, you enter a, a, a store, what do they say? May I help you? Anybody's insulted? Because they ask you, may I help you? To help is an act of charity. Caritas is love. It is the love of God. Therefore, when he said, let us make him a helper, what he meant was, let us make him an incarnation of love. Someone that shows him what love is all about. What did Adam need help with? He needed help to love. Why? Simple. He was by himself. Who are you going to love? The trees? Let's go hug a tree. Well, you might want to do that for a little while, but you know what? The tree is not going to hug you back. Or if it did, you'd better run because it won't be a tree. So, how do you learn love if you have no one to love? You might argue with me that what well, God was walking with him, and I would say yes, and again, that denotes and, or connotes a number of things we can say about Adam, which I'm not going to say. But the point is that the reason what, why God created Eve was to be someone who made love visible, gave love its form, so that when Adam gazed upon Eve for the first time, the first time ever that a man gazed upon a woman, what he saw was love. That is the fundamental and principal relationship that God created between Adam and Eve when he brought them together. 
And they had to be together because only by being together do they truly image God. That is therefore the role of Eve. One might say even today that there is a fundamental theology of womanhood that we can derive from that passage of Genesis. What is the role of the woman? What is the role of the man? One thing we need to understand as Catholics about marriage is this. All of us are free to contract marriage. All of us are free to enter into marriage or not enter into marriage. That is a given. But the one thing we are not free to do is define the roles prescribed to each of our gender within marriage. That is not ours to do because we are creatures. We are not the creator. God created marriage. When he made Eve out of Adam, he effectively created marriage. And he instituted marriage for our good. It is the way to heaven for most of us through marriage. Hence, it is not up to us to define what marriage is all about, but to listen to what God intended for marriage to be. And where can we listen for, where can we have the primary, the ideal model of marital love? We can have it partially with, between Adam and Eve before the fall. For they knew, they were both naked and knew no shame. In that one verse, there is a profound theology of the body. I refer you to the writings of John Paul II on that subject, which he covered extensively. But I would, I would say that there is a second couple that establishes for us the ideal of mar- marital life. And that is Jesus and Mary. Jesus and Mary. Let's go back now to what we said. Eve was created as a helper for Adam. That was her intrinsic, essential, existential role. And I'll tell you this. Any woman today who does not conceive of herself as a helper for a man is going to be an unhappy woman throughout her life. And any man who does not conceive of himself as being Christ for his bride and giving, laying down his life for his bride is going to be an unhappy man for the rest of his life. Why? We don't define those roles. An ant is a two-dimensional being. There is no up and down for an ant. There is forward, backward, left and right. No up and down. So an ant is walking and then an ant gets to a wall and we think the ant is climbing. The ant is no climbing. The ant sees no wall. It's all straight. The moment the ant sees the wall, the ant is no ant anymore. It is something else. That is a constraint that is built into the ant and makes possible for the ant to be an ant. Constraints are here for our liberty. They're not here to constrain, to put us into a box, but to make us free. Music has 13 notes, and with 13 notes you have Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven. 13 notes. It's a constraint, but it is for our freedom. Those constraints in the marital relationship are given by God. They have, though, two limits. The first one, the relationship between man and woman, and with death. Meaning the man in heaven is not the head of the woman, for all in heaven have only one head, Jesus Christ. And the second, the relationship between a man and a woman that we're talking about, apply only within marital life, not outside of it. Hence, any man who thinks that because within marriage, 
he is called to be the head, means that outside marriage, he or a man must be bossing women around, has got it wrong. He doesn't understand how this works. Outside of mar- mar- marital life, in the work environment, a woman can be a boss, a man can be a boss. A woman can be a president, a man can be a president. And so on and so forth. Those functional roles, those professional roles, are not intrinsic to who we are. They're there to help us make a living. Marriage is a completely different category. As I said earlier, this relationship between Adam and Eve is a prototype to the relationship between Jesus Christ and Mary. When Adam saw Eve, he said, he exclaimed, at last, this one is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Meaning, this one is truly worthy of my love. When Mary saw Jesus on the cross, she's the only one. The only one. No angels. Not even God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. No one else could say that. At last, this one is flesh of my flesh, bones of my bones. The only one who could say that is Mary. There are differences though. Eve was called mother of the living after the fall. We're told by scripture that after the fall, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And after the fall, Adam said, Adam called her Eve because she was the mother of the living. Mary, on the other hand, conceived with no fall. Her immaculate conception meant that she brought forth a son without the fall. Eve is the mother of the living, but we can also say Eve is the mother of the dead. Why is that? In Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 12, St. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one person sin entered the world, and through sin death, and thus death came to all, inasmuch as all sinned. In that one verse, St. Paul is saying that to be dead is to be in sin. And the sin that he has in mind is original sin. This verse is actually used by many Protestants to attack the Immaculate Conception. Because they say, look, he's saying all have sinned. How could you then say that Mary was without sin? Right? And, and most Catholics go, well, yeah, you must be right. We got it wrong. Instead of understanding the context, what he means by this is that original sin affects everyone. Jews as well as Gentiles. He doesn't mean that, that he doesn't mean that everybody have everyone is responsible for personal sins, because if that's the case, he's then saying that all infants have sinned, which is nonsense. It's absurd. So the all have sinned simply means that all of humanity is in that category. It doesn't exclude exceptions, Mary being one of them. And of course the second being Jesus. He's God, he's man. If all have sinned, he sinned as well. All right. The point, though, is that being in sin is being dead. Therefore, Eve has also, in a sense, the title of mother of the dead. Because when that original sin was committed, eternal life was taken away from us. So spiritually, spiritually, every child that was born was a spiritual monster. Monstruosity is when you have a fundamental deformity of the nature of something. 
right? So, for instance, uh, somebody's born with three arms, right? This is a monstruosity. Or somebody's born with a head that is five times the size of a normal head. It's a monstruosity. There's a fundamental deformation in the nature of something. Or when there is something that is intrinsically lacking. Somebody's born without eyes. That's a monstruosity. Well, what bigger monstruosity can you think of when someone is born without grace in their soul? You understand? Original sin effectively prevented the grace of God to enter the soul and instill in us the supernatural life. Practically speaking, what that means is that people grew without faith, without hope, without charity. The love of others. In many parts of the world where there is no Christian culture that has been present for some time, it is very common to see people dying on the street and people just walking over them. To us, it sounds so strange and barbaric, but the reality is that our conscience has been so much seeped by Christian values and our sensitivity is such that we can immediately look at this and see the wrong. But to someone who has not been seeped in those Christian values, it looks perfectly normal. It's their problem. It's not mine. What can I do for it? It's, they're born in this condition. Hey, life goes on. No hope, no faith, no charity. That's what original sin did. That's what Christ came to restore, to, to fix. Now, Mary, therefore, is given as a helper to Jesus. In uh, precise terminology, we saw she scored a Right? That's one term we use, meaning that she has achieved redemption with and under Christ. And she's mediatrix of all graces, meaning that all graces that Christ wishes to give us flow through her. These words have been used constantly throughout the history of the church. They're nothing new. And they're fairly well accepted, and they're very precise. They mean exactly what I just told you. She is the helper. As Eve was the helper for Adam, she is the helper for Christ. If that is the case, then the question becomes, helper for what? There we turn to St. John. In order to understand the role that Mary plays, we have to understand what is it that Jesus came to bring us. What is the one thing that we lacked before Christ came? And what is the one thing that we gained after He came? It's one word. And it is precisely life. Life. In John, chapter 1, verse 4, we read, In Him, meaning in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Therefore, the life was the light of men. Notice how he associates light with life. The life he has in mind is not therefore a pure physical life, but it is precisely the life of the Spirit that enlightens the mind and makes us see the truth. The truth about God, so that our heart is able then to say, Yes, Lord, I want to be with you. For only truth will set us free. We are not converted by our emotions. Our emotions may play a very powerful leverage to move us forward. 
to give us that w- the desire to assent to the truth. But it is an act of the will. It is a pure act of the will that says, I choose to believe. I choose to believe. That is a choice that I make, which is the culmination of a very complex process involving emotions, reasoning, memories, testimonials, witnessing. But at the end of the day, all those things have to culminate at the apex with that one word of the will that says, I believe. And that has to be illuminated by truth. We have to see the truth. And the truth is that light. And the light is in life. It is in life. That is a very important, very important truth of our faith. I cannot stress it enough. Because there are, as usual, two, two extremes we must avoid. The first one is to negate the importance of the body. Our body is not important. The only thing is important is our spirit. One deformation that I've seen many, many times among married Catholic uh, families, especially women, is to look down upon sex as something bad or dirty or just needed for to make kids, and that's it. That is a false theology. Sexuality is holy. It isn't just good. It is holy. Why? Because it expresses this truth of the gift to each other that God has created in our bodies. So one, one extreme is to think of the body as something you just have to move away from. That's Puritanism. That's a heresy. It's not Catholicism. The other extreme is to fall into hedonism. The only thing that matters is the body. Life, when life and light joins... When life and light joins together, you have incarnation. You have truth incarnate. Truth that takes form in a body. You have the Lord. You have Christ born out of a woman. He was born flesh from her flesh, bones from her bones. It is very important for all of us to understand this principle. Every woman must have a man in her life, and every man must have a woman in his life. For us who are called to the married life, that's going to be our spouse. For those of us who are called to celibate life, the woman is going to have Christ. The man, in a fundamental way, is also going to have Christ. Our souls, we also speak in the soul, in the mystical theology, the soul is feminine, and Christ is the spouse of our souls. But also, in a practical sense, the man has Mary in his life. There's always that relationship to beauty that is incarnate. That is incarnate. That is very important to us for our well-being, for our ability to always believe that God is beautiful. We need that sense of beauty present in our life. It's so important. But that's who God is. He has life in Him, and life is the light of men. Life, therefore, is freedom from sin. If death is sin, then life is freedom from sin. And when Mary is mother of life, she is therefore mother of holiness. What that means is that when Mary becomes our mother, she immediately begins to call us to the highest possible human ideal. 
Because she seeks holiness in us. Immediately she is going to get us enlisted into the school of holiness of her son. Which means that she's going to transform us from sinful men and women into saints. That is a very dynamic title to be called mother of life. For life changes constantly and move towards eternal life or damnation. And when you're when you have your mother being the mother of life, it means that she has now taken on that charge to turn you into a saint because she is a helper to her son. At the foot of the cross, and we've talked about that at length two lectures ago, Jesus said to Mary, Woman, behold your son. She's mother of life. She has brought forth this son. John, he is the first fruit of the, the second fruit, if you will, to speak of the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. And in a very profound sense, Jesus rising from the dead is also Jesus born out of Mary, out of her suffering that she joined with him on the cross. By his, by his own volition, by his own will, by his own desire, he makes it happen. He makes it happen. But he doesn't deny her her motherhood. He doesn't deny her her pain in bringing forth not only the head, but the body at the foot of the cross. He exalts her. Behold your son. Life is given continuously, for it is running water. This is what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Life is always dynamic, always changing, therefore always painful. We are to grow. And running water from heaven will always clash with our fallen nature. Running water from heaven will always act as a medicine poured on an open wound. It will always be painful but it is for our good. There is, therefore, on, there is therefore in the role that Christ gave Mary an important element of schooling. Mary is a teacher. She's a teacher of life. She teaches us not only how to live, but she teaches us what life is all about. Not only how to live, but what life is all about. Because life is not a thing. Life is not an abstract concept. Life is not an idea. Life is Jesus Christ. Life is a person. Life is a beating heart. Life also is the bread. Life is the bread of life. It is our mother that feeds us. And therefore, we have a very profound connection between the Eucharist and Our Lady. Mary gives us the bread of life because she is our mother. It is her duty to feed us. And she does so. That's why the ecclesiology, the whole structure of the church, is connected with Mariology. And that's why we always say that Mariology, the doctrine of Our Lady, precedes the Petrine doctrine of the church. Mary before Peter. For Mary is our mother for eternity. 
And the whole, you can think about the whole ecclesiology, the whole structure of the church with the Pope and the priest, the bishops and the priest as what? As the ideal of men in the service of the one perfect woman. Without the priesthood, we men would lack an ideal. The highest ideal we can, we can aspire to as men is precisely to serve a noble lady. And there is no nobler lady than Mary. That's why the priests are specially beloved of Our Lady. Because in the priest, you find, or you ought to find, the perfect example of a perfect son of the perfect woman. Priests exemplify for us, make real for us, bring back to us the life of Nazareth. The hidden life where Jesus, till he was 30 years old, lived under the roof of Mary as a symbol, as an indication of the way he always wanted the church to be. The church is this house where he abides. And the church, therefore, is the presence of Mary across the world holding Jesus. And the priest... Images Christ for us. Always remember that. You cannot be close to the Eucharist and being far away from Mary. That makes no sense. Because you would be like a child who loves the food and is indifferent to the hand feeding him. Life is the presence of the Spirit. The Shekinah. The presence, the dwelling of the Spirit in the temple. That is what life is. Where the Spirit does not dwell, where the Spirit leaves, there is only desolation. Behold, your temple is left empty and desolate. That's how Christ spoke to the leaders of the temple before He left it. Therefore, Mary, in her title, Mother of Life, carries forth the presence of the Holy Spirit. St. Maximilian Kolbe said about the Holy Spirit that it is the eternal, immaculate conception of love between the Father and the Son. For when the Father gazes upon His Son, He conceives for Him divine love. And when the Son returns the gaze, He conceives for His Father divine love. And that exchange of divine love is... The Holy Spirit. Immaculately eternal love. Immaculately unconceived love. And Mary is the created immaculate conception of love. She is the one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells with such intensity that one might say with St. Maximilian Kolbe, and I do believe that this is very accurate theologically, that Mary is the quasi-incarnation of the Holy Spirit. That is, if the Holy Spirit was ever to be incarnate, that's what He would look like. The title, therefore, of Mary, Mother of Life, is a title that indicates the mothering aspect of God, the Holy Spirit, the Consoler, the the advocate. And what Mary will teach us is to foster a profound and deep devotion 
adoration, love, and an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. Life is peace and justice. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3 through 13, which is that chapter that has most of those curses that we all fear. But the first verses from 3 to 13 are blessings. And those blessings explain what shalom, what salam, what peace is supposed to mean. It means rain in its seasons. It means food aplenty. It means tranquility of mind. It means harmony with neighbors. It means having what we need in its appropriate time. It means life around us. That is what peace means. There can be no life without peace. And there can be no peace without justice. So when we say of Mary as when we give her that title of Mary, Mother of Life, we do not simply mean by that that she is the mother of, the, of, of children. We mean by that that from her and through her will come an ordered, peaceful, just life. And there we see how and why it is impossible to have peace among nations until those nations recognize the queenship of Mary. You can have pacification, you can have cessation of hostility, but that's not peace. Peace cannot happen without the queenship of Mary, without she being declared queen's, queen of nations. Now, on the other hand, we would, we would do well to recall what Our Lady told St. Bernadette, and also recall what is written in the book of Revelation. When she saw Bernadette, Our Lady told her, I promise to make you happy. Not in this world, in the next. So let us be very realistic about what we can and cannot achieve in this world. Let us be very realistic about the purpose of this world and our role in it. Life is not about creating paradise on earth. That's not going to happen. Life is about eternity. In the book of Revelation, which we're going to cover next week in more detail, in verse 17 of chapter 12, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony of Jesus. The rest of her offspring. Those are her children. The mere fact that we are not dealing with human emotions and human wills and desires tell you that to search for perfect peace on earth is effectively an illusion. Because you're going to, you are dealing with the devil and all the demons who will not abide peace on earth. That's whom you are up against. And in, in an angel, an angelic being, whether good or bad, once that being makes his mind about something, it will never be changed. Angels don't change their minds. Once it's made, it's made. And there, therefore, the devil is and will always be, all the way through eternity, angry with the woman. 
angry with the woman. Anyone, anyone who think that genders are exchangeable does not believe in the devil. Because the devil certainly does not think that genders are exchangeable. He's not angry with a man. He's angry with the woman. With the woman. And that's why in this century he did everything he can and he's still doing it to disfigure and deform the image of Mary in women. He has successfully convinced women that they should dress in ways that are as opposed to the ways Mary dresses as possible. He has successfully convinced them that it would be better for them to be working and holding a job than to be mothers. He has successfully convinced them that to be a wife is to be the absolute equal of to her husband in everything and in every way such that genders are almost exchangeable. He has succeeded in convincing her that to show her qualities and her beauty, she must, she must um, show her body, effectively turning her into that which Mary is not. That is the strategy of the devil. And with the help of women, he has been very successful. When you read the Roman historians who were reflecting on the state of the Roman civilization, you will see that without exception, every single one of them will say that they would basically were predicting the fall of Rome based on the disintegration of the life of the family. And when women stop looking to Mary as the model, when women stop looking to Mary as an operative model, not just as a model of holiness in heaven, we put her on a statue, and between her and my, my practical life, there is no relationship. The way she dresses is not the way I'm supposed to be dressed. The way she would behave is not the way I'm supposed to, be, to behave. The way she would do things is not the way I'm supposed to do things. These were all done in the past or in heaven. See, see I mean, it's an amazing trap. You've got to give the devil his, his due. You've got to give the devil his due. How he successfully created this sort of a almost um, psychotic situation in the, in the heads of women to where they can be perfectly and completely devoted to her and saying her rosary and yet at the same time living a life that is apart or away from the way she would consider important. In other words, women do not allow her to run their lives. And only when will they start doing so will they be able to put, to stop the destruction of civilization. I'm focusing on women because there is a very intimate and direct relationship between them and Mary. I would have more to say about men, but that would be for a different time. I am not, don't think a second that I'm allowing men off the hook. I am not. But I am focusing on one subject that tends to be controversial because it is accepted in our society to blame men for everything, but it is not so accepted in our society to blame women for anything. How should we then respond? How should we then respond to the call of motherhood? Mary is our mother by Christ's decree. Woman, behold your son. And when he said son and did not use the name, he just wanted to generic, meaning child. Whether you're a man or a woman, when you are brought before Christ, when you're brought into the church, he's saying the same thing. Woman, behold your child. Now that Mary is our mother... We have to wonder how do we respond. 
You see, Christ had some, some ideas about that that he shared with us. The first thing is, we have to honor the Lord by honoring his law. We have to then obey the Ten Commandments. We have to know the Ten Commandments by heart and keep them, which means reflect upon them. The law is effectively an articulation of what it means to be alive. If someone were to come to say to you, what does it mean to be alive? You say, read the Ten Commandments. That's what it means. Effectively, this is what they are. Couch in a negative, you will not, you will not, you will not, but you can turn them in the positive. You will, you will, you will. The Beatitudes are the other aspect, the other side of the coin of the Ten Commandments. Keeping the law, therefore, is not, is not a way of earning God's favor. I'm not keeping the law because I'm waiting for God to reward me. I am keeping the law because God has already given me a favor. He has adopted me as his son and he has given me to marry. Therefore, it is my duty to keep the law. No, no more, no less. My absolute duty to keep the law. The law of God and the law of his church. So when the church says, you will be here on Sunday, you will, you will be in mass from beginning to end, you'll hear from beginning to end. You don't skip at the end before the priest gave his blessing. You wait to the end. When the church says you will not use contraception, you will not use contraception. When the church says abortion is an evil, abortion is an evil. So on and so forth. The moral law and the law of God go hand in hand. And this is how I respond back to God in saying, I am indeed the child of your mother. That is the first response. God expects that of us. If you recall, and many of us like that to a certain degree until we start really thinking about it, what, what, what did he say about children when, there, when the disciples were rebuking the children? What did he tell his disciples? Let the children come to me. What did he add? For to these is given the kingdom of God, right? And amen, amen, I say to you, unless you become as a child, you will not. And we puzzle over this. We puzzle over this. What did he mean by that? The really interesting part in this puzzle for, I would say, 99.99% of Christians out there, when they puzzle about this, is that for some odd reason, we tend to fail to ask ourselves a simple question. When Jesus Christ said, you must become like children, did he have in mind an orphanage? Did he have in mind a bunch of kids running on their own? Huh. So, what do you think a child has? A mother. So what is he telling them? Woman, behold your son. You see what he means? It's at the cross that you completely understand what he means. Behold your son. You must become like children, meaning go home. That's your mom. Listen to her. The same message was given Nicodemus. You must be born again. And again, there we never ask this question, what? Okay, born from whom? Born from whom? In fact, Nicodemus loses, but shall I re-enter my mother's womb? No, not your mother's womb. You have to be spiritually reborn again from my mother because of the suffering she's going to share with me on the cross. That she's going to make it possible for you and countless others to become 
those little kids. And she will hold you by the hand and lead you to me. Why? Because this is how I want it to be. Why? Because I'm the boss. Why? Because I said so. The way we respond also is that we must imitate her son to have his life imprinted in our soul. And in order to do that, we have to pray the rosary. The rosary is a mystery. The rosary is a mystery. You know, I've been thinking about the rosary for 14 years, and the rosary is not an easy prayer. It is deceptively simple, but it is certainly not easy. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas said that you can hardly find anyone who can say, One Our Father, well. The rosary is, a, is the school of Mary. When we pray the rosary and we are tired or we're bored, or our mind is dancing all over the place, and we can't even concentrate, or we concentrate for a little bit until the loto comes in our mind and drags us on that bus over there, and then we try to concentrate again, and we feel so pagan because we can't seem to light up any fervor in our heart. Some of us may be discouraged or may tend to think my rosary is worthless. Your rosary is nothing more than your ABCs. You're a little kid sitting next to your mom and you're learning how to read. A, B, C, Z, X, Y, T. No, no, no. Start all over. Okay. A, B, C, T, U, V. No, no, no. You got to do it again. How do you teach kids? Lots of repetition, isn't it? That's what it is. The rosary is this ABC of heaven. It is the language of heaven. How many of us can speak heavenly? Get it? You're learning to speak heavenly. Is it going to be hard? You bet. Everything in you rebels against it. Your fallen nature is against it. The devil is against it. The world is against it. The flesh is against it. Is it going to be easy? No. It won't. Now, there could be chosen souls out there whom God favors with graces, one rosary after the other. With consolation, one rosary after the other. Wonderful. I'm really happy that these souls exist out there. I'd like to meet one of them. That's not me. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I can't recall saying one rosary that was pleasant to say in my entire life. Not one. A, B, C, T, U, X, V. I'm still there. We must keep alive the relationship we have with our mother by silent contemplative prayer. So think of the rosary as this moment where we're talking about the family affairs. It's a family dinner, we're sitting together, we're talking about the family. And think about contemplative prayer as a date with our mother. This is how the two relate to each other. They serve different purposes. We must expect and accept correction. That's the part, as I said earlier, where we keep Mary outside of our lives. We don't want her to be fully our mother. In the book of Wisdom, chapter 11, verse 26. Thou sparest all things, for they are thine, O Lord, who lovest the living. For thy immortal spirit is in all things. Therefore thou dost correct little by little those who trespass, and dost remind and warn them of the things wherein they sin, that they may be freed from wickedness and put their trust in thee, O Lord. Those of us who have an acute or sensitive um, consciousness can be discouraged seeing their own sins. 
but they ought to be not not no more discouraged than a child who go play who who plays in a wood every day and comes back dirty from head to toe and he has to take a shower every day his mom is there and she loves him dirty or not little by little she conforms us to the image of her son she does it not us so let's not be like cats Let's not be that like, like cats when the time is to give them a shower or, a, or wash them. You've seen that? Okay. That's how most of us are when time comes for correction or washing spiritually. We want to do it. We, we, we know how to do it. We can't just stay still and let her take care of it. Another really important element and perhaps the last element I will have to mention is that freely we received, freely we must give. First and foremost, the gift of life. We give the gift of life by receiving children. For those of us who are going to be in a married, in a, in a married sta- um, uh, station, and for those of us who call to be a priest or a nun, it is a spiritual fatherhood or motherhood. That is the first response, children. The second is to give those children the sacramental life. Again, the church asks us to baptize our children within the first four weeks of their earthly lives. And there's a good reason for that. The third is that we give them to their mother. And we give our children to their mother by teaching them early on how to say the rosary, by saying it with them in the family, by living the faith, by being a living proof of that title that is Our Lady. And we nurture their spirit by the constant study of Scripture. We are, we are beings that forget. We forget, we forget, we forget. Especially us living here in the United States of Amnesia. None of us can really remember what happened last Monday, let alone the week before. The, de- the devil will get us into hell not by stuffing our heads with things, but by just taking out of them the essential things that we must do by forcing us to neglect our faith. That's all. So we have to refresh it constantly. It's our duty, and to pass it on to our children and those people around us. And the last way in which we respond is that paradox, the central paradox of the Christian faith. We have to lose our life. We cannot keep it. Unless we lose our life, we will not find it. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15 through 21, we hear the following. Take heed and beware of all covetousness, greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, who, who, will, who will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let me put this parable to you in more modern terms because then maybe we can connect better to it. The 401k and stocks 
of a rich man uh, brought him 20% return yearly. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? What am I going to do with all this money? And he said to himself, I know, I'll just go on cruises and then spend my life in, on the beach. And I will tell, I'll say to myself and my family, come over here, we'll have a good time, um, and I'll be able to live my life like this. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, your soul is required of you tonight. And the things you have prepared, who will they be? The meaning of this parable is simple. Life is about losing it. It's a very hard paradox for us to really juggle in practical terms. What does that mean? I have a family. I am trying to find a way to, uh, to get some money so I can improve on my life and help others. Does this mean I am now greedy? I want to be able to create a business that will allow me to focus on charity. Does this mean I'm greedy? Here's how you look at it. There's, there's three things that are really important. The first one is, is your intention to do everything for the glory of Mary? If so, you've asked her, Mother, what do you want of me? Whether you have a dollar or you have a billion dollars, it doesn't matter. Money comes, money goes. What are you doing with it? Are you doing it for the intention of God? It's not that easy. You remember what he said? Beware. Beware. The idea is that you need to look at money as if it's a piece of, it's something that is full of napalm. Napalm can burst in fire, contact with air, water, or anything. In other words, money can burn your hands. If your approach to money is like that, you're always keeping it at arm's length. And you understand it is a, it is a tasking responsibility that God gave you. And the more of it means more responsibility, more talents that you have to give account of when you die. And you have, first and foremost in your mind, the glory of God, working towards the glory of God, and doing, using all your talents for God's glory, and He will give you everything else you need. Then you have nothing to worry about. But it takes a very profound spiritual discipline. The more money you have, the more spiritual you ought to be. You need it. To summarize this, our answer should then always be, Lord, look, I have built a house for your mother so that many may find shelter and food. Many may be clothed and protected. Many seeking eternal life may find it abundantly here. That ought to be the response that we give our Lord when we meet Him face to face. And we can only pray that we are or that we will be truly worthy children of the mother of life, children of life. God bless you. We have time for questions. The question is then, uh, the evangelicals look at Mary and they will say, she's the mother of Jesus, uh, she's the one who gave him birth, but that's it, it stops right there. They, they, can't, uh, un, you know, they can't fathom any of that stuff I'm talking to you about tonight. It's very hard for them. What is the rationale? Given that 
as soon as you are convinced that Christ saved us, rather, Christ by His death on the cross justified us, meaning that He put a blanket, a white blanket around us, so that when the Father looks at us, He doesn't see our sins anymore. They're still there, but God the Father doesn't see them anymore. As soon as you say that work is not necessary, you've said suffering is not necessary. As soon as you say that, that all the Marian theology go out the door. They cannot understand it. To them, Christ alone saved us by justifying us, not by sanctifying us. Mary is the mother of mercy, and her role is to be the one who helps us grow in sanctity. What if you've taken sanctity out of the door, what do you need a mother to help you grow in sanctity? The problem that they run into most often is when you press them on whether Mary is the mother of God. They have a problem with that. Because to them it's dangerously Catholic. So is Mary the mother of God? There is a hiccup. So it isn't enough to talk to them about Mary in a vacuum. We have to talk to them about Mary in the context of sanctification and make them understand the fundamental principle that Christ came not to simply hide our sins away, but precisely to enable us to overcome them. And therefore, He wants us to grow. And as soon as there's growth, there's life. And as soon as there's life, there's a mother. That's what they say. Yes, what they say is that when we're saved, we mean by this that Christ took upon Himself all our sins. Our guilt remains, is not gone, but He took it all upon Himself. God looked upon His Son, saw that He paid all our debt, and therefore when He looks upon us, He can essentially accept us. But we are just as we were before. There's no sanctification. There's no sacraments. There's no transformation into holiness. There's no transubstantiation. It's the whole Catholic doctrine. And that's why I say to you that any Catholic who tries to say to an evangelical, let's just keep Mary aside, would be like someone who took the rosary and took the first bead. and saying, let's talk about the other ones. Pretty soon you have very little to talk about. So instead your approach should be, where do I talk about Mary? When do I talk about her? Sometimes it'll be up front. I'd be up front. The first thing I'm going to talk to is about Mary. Other times, that will be the, she will be sort of in the background because I'm going to be focusing on, you know, Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide and all that wonderful stuff and build from there. It depends on the person you're talking to, what they are comfortable with. But you can never neglect her or think that as long as you just make them a Catholic who have a problem with Mary, that's good enough. Okay? That's not going to work in the long term. Any other question? Um, the question is, Jeremiah speaks of a woman encompassing a man with devotion. Should we then uh, apply that to Our Lady? As, as, as you know, one way to apply this in a specific instance is when you think of Mary mothering us, not Mary mothering Jesus. Right? Uh, the relationship between Mary and Jesus is not necessarily what he's talking about here. He's effectively saying that a woman will help a man 
through her devotion. She has to be devoted to her husband, just as a husband has to be devoted to his wife. Yeah, and she will encompass him, meaning she'll make a wall around him. She will protect him. She will defend him. And those are all the things that Our Lady does for us. Yes, you can definitely imply it. Actually, you're bringing a really good point. Once you understand the four senses of Scripture and you read Scripture, you'll see Our Lady everywhere. Everywhere. It's very easy to see then how in the Old Testament, you don't only have prefiguration of Mary, you have, I mean, of Jesus, you also have Mary prefigured everywhere. Yes. No. The question is, is not tithing a sin? And the answer is no, it is not. Because you are not under obligation to tithe. You're under obligation to support your local parish. But there is no obligation that the church puts you under to actually spend 10% of your income on, on supporting your church or charities. However, it would be a great thing to do if you can. All right? So fasting, some, not fasting sometimes is a sin because the church asks us to fast. Now going to confession is a sin because the church asks us to do that. But the church does not require us, put us under the obligation to tithe. Well, I wish it was also a Catholic thing. I mean, this is a completely separate subject, but the, the point is um, you go to a restaurant and at least you'll give a tip of three bucks. People come to the church and have no problem putting one dollar. Yeah. I mean, some people have issues and problems, don't have money, and then, okay, fine. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about the quantity. I'm just talking quantity in relationship to what we do outside. Right? That's all. Yes. The question is, life is always changing. What do we mean by that? There is so little we know. So very little we truly know. And God's plan is so far greater than anything we can conceive, imagine, or reflect upon. And He teaches us more by the changes He brings in our lives than anything else. Just that, like this running water that comes into our life, changes occur from the merciful hand of God in our lives because He's teaching us our heavenly ABC. So one day you learn the A, and the following day you learn the B and the C, and the fourth day you've forgotten all three of them. We go back to square one. We start all over, and we do it again and again. And that constant change reflects the solicitude, the providence of God's loving mercy for us, for our spiritual and temporal growth. Both, yes, because he worries about us living here and us living over there. Yes. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.